I didn't take a break at all that summer. That was 2019. And, and then we restarted the season and I, <laughs> there was no break at all. I, at that point for a few months, I really felt kind of burnt out. Like I didn't feel like I had the passion for playing. It is March 15th, 2021, and you are listening to episode 31 of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. What's going on, everybody? Sam Rothstein here, acting principal clarinet with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and host of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. I first wanted to apologize to everyone for not releasing any new episodes this past month. I've been busy with some other projects as well as ramping up my practice time in preparation for the start of the Indianapolis Symphony season soon, so the podcast took a bit of a backseat for a while, but I look forward to producing some more episodes soon, and I wanted to re reassure you that we are indeed not going anywhere, so you can look forward to some great content coming up soon. My guest for today is Chris Pell, who is the principal clarinetist of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Prior to his appointment in Cincinnati, Chris was the principal clarinet of the Louisiana Philharmonic. Chris and I first met when we were fellows together at the Tanglewood Music Center, and I wanted to bring Chris on today to talk about expectations that he had before becoming a professional clarinetist versus what his experience has been uh, for the first 10 or so years of his career. So, Chris, it's so nice to see you, buddy. Oh, it's great to see you, too. It's uh, really nice to be here, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So the first question I have for you is, how old were you and how much schooling did you have when you first got your job in Louisiana? So I was 21, uh, it was 2012, and it was right after we were, was it right after or right before we were at Tanglewood together? It was like a couple weeks after, if I remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was like the, the week after, and um, um, so I was 21 at that point, and that was the, the summer after my junior year or third year at Juilliard and um it was like two or three weeks before we went back to school in September so um once um oh and there was a hurricane about to hit um I remember that yeah um and I, I had flown into New Orleans and just stayed at a hotel that was kind of walking distance but luckily I got a ride with um you know Jason Schaefer Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, Aaron Fung, who now lives in Cincinnati with her husband, Chris okay. Sales, he's a principal bassoon here and, uh, Brad Whitfield. Um, so Brad and Jason were at new world together and Aaron, uh, was also friends with them. So they asked if I would want to take a ride with them over to Houston and catch a flight the next morning instead of out of new Orleans, cause there was a hurricane. So, um, kindly enough, they, they waited around and, and we all went together and like drove it's like a two hour driver. Oh, I, I don't remember how long it is. It's not super long. So we just kind of drove throughout the night. And, um, but yeah, uh, I didn't really have any expectations of, of winning an audition, especially at that point. And so I quickly had to figure out everything. I didn't have my driver's license yet. I only had a permit because I grew up in New York city. So <clears throat> I would, my, my grandparents lived in Georgia, and so I would get to practice driving when I was down there, and only in the summers. So my when I got off the plane that, that next morning, my grandpa took me straight to the DMV, and I, I got my, my license, luckily. I don't know what would have happened if I didn't, if they didn't give it to me. And, um, and then I had to, like, figure out 
where to live. I, I didn't know anything about New Orleans, so I, I just kind of picked an apartment that looked like it was going to be nice. And it turned out it was too far from where I needed to be, but I had no idea like what the map of the city was or, or where to live. So there were a whole bunch of things that I was really not ready for at all. And I didn't have any friends who had gone through that situation uh, yet. So, yeah. Um, so can I back you up a little bit? Like when you were preparing for the, cause I remember you were preparing for the audition when we were, you know, the waning weeks of the festival and, mm -hmm. um, like, what were your expectations about the audition? What, like, had you taken an audition before? Were you like, um, you know, okay, I'll just see how it goes. Or were you like, oh, if I get this job, you know, I'm going to start working. Like, what were your, what was the purpose for you, like, taking the audition? Were you just like, I'm ready to start my career? I'm just, just curious where your head was at that point in time. I, I remember freshman year, uh, turning to my friend, and in life, wouldn't it be really cool to get a job <laughs> before you finish undergrad? Um, and I guess kind of having that in the back of my head for some reason, I don't know exactly why. Um, and so I, I had taken, uh, my first audition was Cleveland opera, um, which is no longer a company, I don't think. And that was for third and bass. Um, and I am horrible at the bass clarinet. So I was swiftly, um, actually I didn't even play it. Um, so it did, didn't even matter that I was terrible at the bass clarinet. Uh, I didn't play it in the first round, but I was swiftly asked to not play the clarinet again at that audition. And then, uh, a year later, um, that was after my sophomore year, I took the Knoxville, um, acting principal audition, which, um, Peter, what's his name? Peter Kane. Yes. Peter mm -hmm. Kane won. Um, and I was, I was in the finals for that. And, I was 19 or 20, I was 20 and everybody else was like late twenties. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is super easy. How, my second <laughs> audition and I'm already in the finals. Like this is the easiest thing. So then, um, I, I felt okay for the LPO one, um, and, and got that. And then like three weeks later, I, I took LA principal. That was the first one that they took and immediately didn't advance. It was like, four minutes of playing and they're like, thanks. This, that was terrible. And from that point on, it was, um, a drought of about 14 auditions, um, that I, I didn't advance. And so it was kind of a roller coaster right away and, and thinking that it was going to be something totally different than it turned out to be. And thinking, it was like, wow, if I just show up at the auditions, I get what I want. And then, and then immediately I, I learned that that wasn't the case. Yeah, well, I think there's actually some something to the, this sort of like blind, um, just, you know, you don't know any better kind of thing, because you're just like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, whatever, sure, I'm in the finals, you know, um, mm -hmm. where you don't actually know how hard it is to to create that consistency and, and results throughout your career, which it seems like you discovered as you were, you know, playing this job, and you were just like, okay, whoa, like, it was easy, and now... It's not anymore because you start to sort of dig deeper into it a little bit more and, and, and figure out mm -hmm. some of the nuances and audition taking. That's really cool. Um, so, so you said you needed to get a driver's license. That was like your first main thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I think I, I'm just curious. Like, so you're you're 21 years old in the mm -hmm. Louisiana Philharmonic. You're a principal player. You know your colleagues are probably for the most part a good deal older than you. I, I know. I think it wasn't Jacqueline there with you, Jacqueline Rainey and. And yeah, was Andrew she there as well. The next year, and then Andrew started the next year. Yeah, Andrew um, Brady, so that, who's a bassoonist, yeah. he's now with the Atlanta Symphony. 
So that was probably nice to have some of those uh, colleagues next to you that you were familiar mm -hmm. with and, 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 you know, sort of your similar age. But I'm imagining that, like, when you first showed up, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tail, like, it wasn't probably what you thought it was going to be in a lot of respects. And, I, and I just, I'm just curious, like, what was, like, the biggest lesson you learned your first year sort of going through that? I think it was probably just in the first few weeks of, of uh, being used to rehearsal schedules of college or even music festivals where you would rehearse like one or two movements <laughs> of something on the first day. So I remember uh, our first concert was Scheherazade and um, Ravel, uh, both hand piano concerto. What, both hand, what is it? <laughs> both yeah. hand piano. Yeah, the, um, not, not the left hand. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the yeah. G, G major. Yeah and, yeah, and some other things. And I, um, I was like, okay, well, we'll probably just do like a couple movements, harder movements of Scheherazade. And, yeah. and it was like the entire program. And I was fully not prepared because I was also trying to get ready for an audition at the same time. So that was one of the biggest things. You just have to have all of the music prepared <laughs> right away, which now sounds, sounds silly to even have to say that. But at the time um, in school, you do one or two movements per rehearsal, and it's laid out very clearly. But then in a professional situation, you don't have enough time to, you don't have 13 rehearsals. Yeah, and you don't know, and, and the thing is like, you don't know until you get there, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like, you know, all you ever knew up to that point was like, okay, we rehearse a piece to death for three months and then we play a concert. And here it's like, well, you might have one or two program, full programs every week. Yeah. But you just need to boom, boom, boom. And, and you know, that's, a, that's, that's definitely a good lesson to learn <laughs> early on that you need to be like really on top of everything. Yeah. Well, I, I had those experiences in college and then also, uh, my teacher, John Manassi plays at a number of orchestras in New York city. And so he's able to kindly give out freelance work pretty steadily. And mm -hmm. every now and then I would be a lucky benefactor of that, um, uh, generosity. Yeah, <laughs> so, for sure. So in the summers he plays American ballet theater and they're eight shows a week. And, you know, maybe after the sixth show, he'd be like, would you mind coming in and doing the seventh or eighth show? And there were a couple other students who would do that as well. And so I, I had on one hand, the experiences of at Juilliard where you would work on something for 13 rehearsals. And then at ABT, it would be like two days before, Hey, can you just show up and play the second part for Swan Lake? Um, and of course you don't have the music and each ballet company does it differently. So that was a totally different experience. Um, there was nothing ever really in the middle. Like I never subbed a week at the, at the fill or with the Met. Um, I never did like a production with the Met or anything and got used to kind of what a professional, um, arc is for a concert. So it was either <laughs> all or nothing. So, um, yeah. And what do you think, uh, Minus the musical side of it, but interpersonally, like interacting with other professional musicians, what what challenges did you encounter in 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 that regard? Like, I'll I'll share first, so you don't feel exposed here. But mm -hmm. like, so so for me, like one of the I guess one of the regrets that I've had is, you know, I, I'm kind of a fun, you know, guy. Like I, I joke about things and. And one of the things I learned early on is like not everyone at work wants to be your friend, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like I like, 
you know, I would say some things to some people that like maybe I would say at a party or just like, you know, if I'm hanging out at a restaurant and whatever, but some people just don't want that. And I think you have to be really respectful of other people's, like how they view their work. And, and I think that's something that I learned early on was like, okay, not everyone wants to be best friends with me. You know, this isn't like social band time. This is your job. And so that, that's, that's a yeah. lesson that I learned. So I'm curious to hear what, what, what you learned in that respect. That that's a hard lesson. And it sounds like that was maybe not a fun lesson to learn. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was an important lesson to learn for sure. And and like I said, like I never got it in really like a negative and, and, you know, sometimes like I would say something and I would have really nice colleagues who, you know, they see me as a young guy and they're like, Hey, like, you know, some people just aren't, you know, that way and that's okay. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Like I didn't, I didn't know that. Thanks for pointing that out. So I was fortunate to have those kind of mentors um, as I grew up, you know, through the orchestra ranks, but, um, yeah. but yeah, go ahead. No, I, um, I feel like there are all sorts of things that, that get pointed out to you that maybe we weren't aware of. And, and, um, I kind of adopted this posture of sitting where I, I really slouch. Um, and I've, I've tried to get rid of it when I'm at, at work. Uh, but for me, it's really comfortable while I'm, while I'm practicing. <laughs> And, um, you know, it makes me feel like my air is doing a certain thing and like, it's just comforting. Um, it doesn't feel like a lazy approach or anything. It doesn't feel like that sort of thing, but, um, at work, it doesn't look good. And so something like that, um, comes off badly. Um, I'm, I'm sure I've said tons of things that like, I wish I wouldn't have said at yeah. work. One thing that I, I, I struggle with. Um, and I guess I've always kind of been like this is when I feel like the quality of something isn't as good as it could be, I feel like I get really upset. And, and so something that I've tried to deal with is managing, uh, like finding a balance between, um, caring and getting really upset or being apathetic. Like there needs to be a middle ground where, uh, and I, I guess that is kind of, the balance that, that I'm looking for. Um, I, I don't have any answers to that, but, but the more I think about it and talk about it, I think it helps me kind of just learn about myself and learn about how I interact with other people. But, um, I guess more so than saying anything to anybody, it's, it's been just like the internal, uh, monologue that I have going on throughout rehearsals or Absolutely. And, and I had that, that's a, it's a very interesting point that you bring up because I've had the same experience where it's like, you know, your, your first two or three years in an orchestra, like you, you're proving yourself, right? You want to prove yourself. And then after you prove yourself, you start to kind of get like frustrated with other people and mm -hmm. yourself at the same time. And I had a colleague once, um, he's our English horn player and, and he, he pulled me aside. He's like, Sam, like you got to like, chill like you're gonna be doing this for 40 years 40 mm -hmm. years if you get this upset over every single passage every concert you know you're gonna yeah. you drive yourself nuts and and the uh and actually not to use this person as an example but one of your predecessors in cincinnati richie holly my mm -hmm. colleague um was colleagues with him in charleston when he was mm -hmm. young and and uh apparently richie was struggling uh and Richie, forgive me if you're listening to this episode, but um, apparently Richie was struggling with something. He was getting really frustrated, and his uh, I think it was his second clarinetist or one of the colleagues around him 
just looked at him and said, kid, you got to let it go. You know, <laughs> just like it's a long career. And yeah. if you take every little thing personal and every, you know, you beat yourself up over every little thing or you get frustrated over everything that somebody else does, like you're just you're just not going to last. I mean, mentally, you're just not going to be. So that's that's interesting that you brought that up because I have definitely felt the same way. And it does feel like this balance between apathy and like really caring, you know, so it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike sometimes, I, I, I believe. It's hard because us feeling so adamant about achieving the best quality that we can all the time is kind of what has helped us get to where we are. And growing up, uh, like just talking to ourselves when we're practicing, um, it's like that. And so it's hard to unwire that from yourself when you're around other people, because it really doesn't come off well. It only makes people, um, tense and socially it just, it only goes downhill from there. So, I mean, it, it's something that I, I try to think about and I'm, I'm really not perfect with it. So, Oh um, yeah. I, I, I don't think anyone is. And it's, you know, it's, I always, you know, when stuff like that comes up, I always think to myself, okay, is it, is it worth it to pick this battle? today like is this the right time to do this you know mm -hmm. and i will sit there and think about things for a while before i decide to act on it whereas before i would usually just act and then probably regret the result of it because like you said sometimes it gets tense or whatever so that's a I'm, that's a that's a really great lesson i think for people to learn early on and it sounds like you you you're still you know as we all are battling that yeah i mean one of the things that i i feel like i struggle with is being defensive yeah, uh, when I, whenever I get comments, I feel like one of my primary ways to react is with by being defensive. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, can that be shorter? It's like, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe it was short <laughs> enough, but like other people are playing whatever. Uh, you know, it's like, or can it be louder? It's like, well, can they play softer? You know, that sort of thing happens in my head right away, and and I think it it comes from wanting wanting acknowledgement of like, oh, Chris, that was amazing. Would you mind doing it a little bit? shorter oh yeah great he, they they love me like, why do i need that why is that a part of it so yeah. that, that's only ego so i'm i'm trying to get work on that as well because that that bleeds over into other parts of my life you know and um friendships relationships so it it's never useful for me and and it just um distracts from what the actual uh, request was to begin with so I guess those are the two main things that, that I, I try to deal with now. And I, I think I've always kind of felt them, but, um, in terms of <clears throat> adjusting to being in the LPO from college, I had super nice colleagues and, um, yeah, nice. It, it was really easy and, and it's a really young orchestra. Um, there were a lot of people just like me were in college and, and took an audition just to try it out. It felt like a manageable audition to, to audition for it because it's a really low salary. It's like the lowest salary in the country. Um, but it's filled with people who want to play as well as they possibly can. So it's this exciting energy all the time. And, and you don't even know if some weeks, if you're going to be paid. <laughs> um, so it kind of adds this excitement to everything. Um, whereas I think sometimes other groups can really take their pay for, for granted or just their employment, their benefits, all that for granted. And, and you, you can sometimes hear it. So yeah. um, luckily everybody was super nice and it made it easy. I didn't have any like awkward situations 
um, personally at that point. I mean, random things would happen later on. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I felt like I had more searching that I had to do when I got here um, <clears throat> compared to New Orleans. Um, just trying to figure out what what my role was and when you don't have tenure you want to figure out how to fit in and and for me i've always tried to figure out a way to fit in and it can go too far and i end up losing a sense of what i'm supposed to be doing which is as anybody on stage you're supposed to be expressing yourself um and being as open as possible and you know trying to fit in doesn't really lend itself to that whole paradigm so mm-hmm. uh, trying to find a balance between that too um, you know, playing well with other people, but also being a soloist, no matter what position you're playing. So yeah, that was another thing that I had to work on. Yeah. And I think too, it was nice of you to say that, that you had really, you know, welcoming colleagues and stuff when you were in Louisiana. And I felt the same way, like when I was in Richmond and, and frankly, when I got to Indianapolis. And I think that that's kind of informed me how I want to treat younger colleagues when they come in to orchestras is like, I want, I want to be what those people were to me, to, to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that you feel the same way where it's like, you don't want to, you don't want to start this combative relationship. Like someone's coming into your territory or whatever that you, you want to welcome them and, you know, maybe teach them, you know, lead, guide them rather than like, you know, punishing them for whatever mistakes they may not even know that they're doing, you know? So I think that's, yeah. That's 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 a nice thing, um, and it goes along with like the just a career in an orchestra. Like these orchestras go through these, you know, generational transitions, and and I think that it's it's nice that you have the older sort of the older guard that sort of trains the younger guard, and then you see the transition. I'm I, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm kind of starting to get in the middle now. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I used to always be the youngest person in the orchestra, and now and now that's not no longer the case. So. Um, well, it, it's been different in both orchestras because in, in New Orleans, it felt like anybody who joined um, was trying to find the first audition that they could take to get out of it just because of the financial insecurity of it, not because yeah. of the quality. Um, and so it was a great orchestra for, to get to learn a ton of rep and, and play with good people because um, it's, it's a fully normal season. It's uh, nine months and every week you're doing something, but, uh, everybody is trying to take auditions. And then here, um, as a couple new people have, have joined since I've been here, it's more about like welcoming, welcoming them to the Midwest and being like, they're like really nice things about living here. That uh, cost of living is super cheap. And, um, I mean, I, I grew up in New York city and then lived in, in New Orleans. And I feel like everybody has always, um, just kind of like poo-pooed the Midwest and yeah. been like, you know, it, it's just boring. Like people hide their emotions, all of these things. And then I, I, I moved here and, and really enjoyed it. Um, so it, it's been different here, welcoming new people. It's like, it's actually really nice here. Try to enjoy it. Like these are the, the fun spots to go to and the nice things to do here. So it's just been a little bit different, but was it kind of like that for you too? Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, it's definitely different. Like, so my first job was in Richmond, obviously. And, um, there is a different feeling with the smaller orchestras in terms of just, you know, I, I think this, like you said, the smaller orchestras, a lot of people just kind of want to, it's their way, it's their way to sort of make a living. But at the same time, that's not, they're not ready to live there. And mm-hmm. then when you get to an orchestra, the size of like Cincinnati or Indianapolis, 
it's it's just a different feeling because it feels like there's people that you know this is their home it doesn't feel like this transient kind of you know mm -hmm. people are okay they're there now but they're not wanting to be here now it's like okay people are here and they've been here for 30 years and they're this is their life this is their career and so mm -hmm. it's definitely a different feeling um but you know in terms of the midwest like i grew up in the midwest so i <laughs> <laughs> I'm very I hope used that to wasn't it. Mean at all, no, it wasn't mean at all. It's, okay, it's pretty it, rich it's coming from someone from New York City, though. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, uh, you, you've seen that New Yorker cover where it's like New York City and then the tiny little sliver of Jersey and then everything else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, along the same lines, I mean, how you touched on this briefly, but how. Obviously, like when you're in school, you practice and you take lessons and, you know, you sometimes go to class. I mean, you go to class, um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but but like literally your job is just to like get better at the clarinet. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when you're in a job like the Louisiana Philharmonic or the Richmond Symphony or whatever your, your job is, um, your job is your job. And that's your first, you know, devotion is you got to be ready for work. And so how mm -hmm. different was it for you when you were preparing for auditions while you were in school versus like, okay, I got to prepare for this audition, but I also like have to not get fired. You know, I got to still produce at a high level in my position. Yeah. I mean, you, you said it perfectly that that's kind of exactly how I, how I felt. It, it was like a, taking an audition in school felt kind of like extracurricular. Right. And, you know, if there's time, prepare as much as you can. You know, this is hopefully what I, I will get to do at some point once I graduate. Um, but then there's so many um, more like financial and career implications of taking or like hopes and aspirations are involved when you take them while, while you have a, a current job, because it feels like um, you're trading this experience, which you will most likely not succeed at <laughs> for like $800 and you'll gain a lot of experience that you can use maybe for the next audition. Um, but also you might have to give up a week of work to do it, or like you have to put stress on other people in your section to cover for you. Um, all, all sorts of different things that like, it, it depends on if the music director's there that week, what, what program it is. There are all sorts of things that come into play that when you're in school, it's just like, can I please leave to go do this? Like, sure. Uh, we can even help maybe pay for it too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an so. interesting point you bring up too. Cause like when I got to Indianapolis, I had my first ever experience where I like could not go to an audition. Like they would not let me go. Um, mm. And there was no way that I could take it. And it was very hard for me to swallow because up to that point, and I'm very fortunate, like in Richmond, uh, my music director is very understanding and like just great, like great people all around. People made it work for me because um, they understood, you know, the situation I was in. Um, but in Indianapolis, it's like, this is your job, dude. Like go to work, you know? And so it's just a yeah. different, it was a, it was a hard pill for me to swallow. I was like, oh, okay, this is a, we're in a different, you know, part of my life now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get that. Um, once again, you, you put it perfectly <laughs> much better than I could have said it, it would have taken me like four times as long. So, um, yeah, in New Orleans, they were super understanding of it. And, and you just asked the personnel manager and then there was a whole committee for it. There was a committee for everything. Um, uh, because when they restarted the orchestra, it was, um, it's still musician owned. So everybody's salary is technically a share of the company. Mm -hmm. So the, the there is no three-year uh, contract. 
Right. It, it just gradually changes every year. Basically, it stays the exact same if it doesn't go up by a percent or two. Um, so, so anyways, whenever you ask for time off, it goes to a whole committee of musicians that vote on whether you can have this time off. And uh, same with programming. There's a whole uh, team of musicians that do the programming along with the head artistic planner. And so there's usually like one uh, administrator for that um, part of the uh, behind the scenes of the orchestra and then like a whole committee of, of musicians to do it. So that was also different. You know, they, people could um, judge whether or not you deserve time off to take this audition versus that audition or this gig versus that one um, Broadway show would come through town. And it's like, well, which one do you prefer to give time off for a Broadway show or like for someone to go take an audition or get a surgery? Um, and it was totally different than it is here. You just ask the personnel manager and, and they decide. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, there are benefits to both ways of doing it. Yeah. That's cool. I don't That's know really cool. what that tangent was, but <laughs> no, I, no, it's, it's in Louisiana. It's just so, so different just cause it is like, I mean, I, 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 I really honestly don't understand it, so I'm not going to try to explain it. You, I think you explained it the best way anyone mm. probably could, where it's like the, when they restructured, uh, just for a little bit of background, I think it was, uh, when, was it um, after like Katrina? 1991. Oh, no, it, was it was before, before that. that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So before that, they restructured, and then it became like a musician-owned entity rather than like mm -hmm. the model that we're all used to. So uh, if anyone's interested, I, I, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to find out about it. I'm sure there's information online that you can find out about how exactly that works. But um, that's, I mean, it's actually, it's, it's kind of cool that the musicians have say in a lot of aspects of the, the yeah. organization. It's, it's unique for sure in our industry. And everything is transparent. Um, yeah. The musicians on the finance committee, along with, whoever the C CFO is at that time. And uh, so it, everything is known by everybody. And, and there's something really nice about that. Um, it can also be a real headache because we don't have training in, in how to do that. I mean, the majority of musicians who get to an orchestra haven't been trained on how to pick beautiful programs for a whole season or like with finances. We don't know anything about finances. No. <laughs> so, um, so you're really throwing it in the deep end, like immediately. Yeah, and and they but they encourage you to be on on committees and and really take ownership of of your orchestra. So, and that's different than like the way that I've acted here. Um, I, I feel like I, I've mainly just learned my parts, and um, I'll do like promotional things for different concerts. Um, but even that, like, I don't do that myself. I don't even have social media right now. So, um, that's all done through the orchestra, and then I teach. But but there's nothing of like, hey, can you can you pick out can you help us pick out programs or soloists for two seasons from now? Yeah. Or finances. So it's totally different. Yeah, that's cool though. That's cool. I I, I enjoy that. Um so you've touched on this a, a little bit earlier, but you know, your season is long. I mean, if if you play a fifty two week season, like there's some weeks off in there, but I mean you're playing all the time, right? So uh, you got to reset somehow. You can't just be in your work all the time. You just can't like you just go crazy. Um, so what do you do to sort of like reset your mind and sort of rebalance yourself where you're not just always clarinet, always practicing, always concerts? Like what are some activities that you do to kind of just take your mind off stuff like that? Um, well, something that I started to get into at my 
at the end of the time in New Orleans was working out in various ways. Uh, first started off with weightlifting, um, which I was not good at, still I'm not good at. <laughs> and then, I've never been good at that either, but I still do it. <laughs> well, yeah, didn't you get really into that? Yeah, I, mean, are, I still do CrossFit, but I, yeah, I, I do CrossFit, but I, I don't do it like as much as I used to. My body just can't handle that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. CrossFit is, oh, actually, um, the principal horn in, in the LPO. Yeah, she's um, like a trainer or something, isn't she? Exactly. Yeah, she yeah. owns CrossFit NOLA, which is New oh, Orleans, cool. Louisiana. And she, I think, I mean, I probably had this wrong, but she ranked like in the top 10 of for the women's category of the national CrossFit competition. Oh, good for her. Um, yeah. yeah, like multiple times. She's amazing. So, um, yeah, I kind of got into working on a little bit there and that, that helps clear my mind. And then I went through a breakup two summers ago and I've always wanted to run, but have always gotten really horrible shin splints. So uh, I was already in like so much pain going through that. Yeah. I was like, what are the shin splints? So, um, <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I picked up running and I, I've really, uh, enjoyed that. And I find a lot of sim similarities between practicing and, and running. It's something that has to be done consistently. If you do it like twice a week, it, it ends up not feeling nearly the same as like six, seven times a week. Um, so th there's some days you really feel like you can go for it. And then other days that like, you really need to take it easy. And I, I feel that is kind of mirrored in my practicing too. Um, you know, you notice the headspace that you're in, um, I've stopped listening to anything while I go out on runs usually. And that really helps work through a lot of thoughts. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Quite often I'll start off feeling um, like shitty about practicing or just about something. And then uh, throughout the run, like usually in the middle, um, I, I try to figure out like what, what the source of the issue is. And then usually by the end, probably it's just like a, an endorphins thing. I feel a sense of gratitude for uh, all sorts of things at that yeah. point. <laughs> also maybe a sense of gratitude that I'm basically done with the run. So, um, so how long do you like, do you do like uh, half marathons and stuff or like, what's your like, uh, or do you just have like a, you know, I do five miles a day or whatever. What's your distance kind of, um, sometimes I, I try to aim for a certain amount of miles a week and then, um, other times I try to aim for a certain amount of days a week, or, um, I might try to plan, um, some sort of race at some point and, and they've all kind of been virtual and just by myself, uh, yeah. because I picked up running like right before the pandemic. So, um, it's nothing intense and I, I'm wouldn't, it's, I could never do it at a competitive level. I just am not good at running in that sort of sense, but, uh, it's something that's been, really helpful for me in a, in a lot of different Good. ways. I used to do yoga a lot. That would help in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, also, I like socializing a lot. So uh, going out to eat with people uh, in the before times was a big part of. <laughs> um, We're in the end times now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but even if I don't have time to do stuff like that, learning different music each week, I think helps kind of reset yeah. uh, what I'm doing. And, and luckily having a job where you play, almost every single week uh, is refreshing because there's so many different styles of music that you're doing. It can be a pops one week or opera ballet or different sort of um, subscription concerts. So all of that, I think kind of helps me stay fresh too. Um, 
But yeah, there was a period of time where I was fully burnt out after I got tenure here and going through the breakup. Um, and I, I didn't take a break at all that summer. That was 2019. Um, and, and then we restarted the season and I, <laughs> there was no break at all. Yeah. So, which is my fault. I, I should have just not done some things in the summer, but I, at that point for a few months, I really felt kind of burnt out. Like I didn't feel like I had the passion for playing and, and the pandemic, uh, stopping playing for like a, a couple months really re-inspired me and kind of got me back into it. But, um, Oh, something else that I do, um, which feels really cute when I get to do it is, um, uh, I call a few of my friends and we'll FaceTime and just practice with each other. Um, so I, I usually call, uh, either Anton wrist, you know, him Mm -hmm. or, uh, Taylor Marino. And sometimes even the three of us will just FaceTime and all three of us will practice. Look at you guys. (laughs) That is cute. Yeah. But you know, it helps get, um, get you out of like whatever little funk you're in because sometimes you hear somebody else and it reignites whatever you're trying to listen for in your own playing or suddenly you're performing a little bit and that helps communicate again rather than just be like looking for perfection. So it helps get you out of your own little hole that you might create. Um, and it's also just fun to be able to bounce ideas off of other people. <clears throat> yeah. It's interesting that you felt burnout because I, before the pandemic, I felt it big time. Uh, this is before mm. the pandemic. I was just like, I don't even know if I want to play anymore. And mm. it's not cause I didn't love music. Like I will always love music and always love playing. I was just so in it for such a long time that I just wanted a break. And I was tired of just like the constant grind of just trying to get better and better and better and i felt like i kept hitting walls and kept hitting walls and i was like you know i remember at one point i told my wife man man, if i could just have like six months to just like reset sure enough (laughs) god has a plan you know (laughs) it's like but it really did like you know like i mean when the pandemic first happened like i you know i didn't play for probably two weeks um which isn't that long Mm -hmm. of a time but like even just two weeks where i could just chill and then like another month where i could just like get my bearings and then i was like okay i'll just do this podcast and it's really like reignited my passion for playing Mm -hmm. and music and stuff like that so like now i just like can't wait to get back and start playing again so Mm -hmm. uh you know do you do you ever just take some time off like that uh where you can just oh i took a ton of time off yeah good i would take um luckily i had like um a few videos that i had to create for various things um so that would bring me back into playing, but I would take like a month, six weeks off, but it was kind of at the point where I, I wasn't even counting, um, yeah. and, uh, uh, like how many days I had not played for at that point. And I would just wait to want to play again and then, and then do that. Um, because yeah, exactly. You, you put it perfectly. Once again, it's like you're in it. You're so in it for so long. I should start a podcast or something. <laughs> I mean, that, that's pretty stressful too. um i mean this is the easy part once you do this then all of the other like production stuff is is the challenging stuff (laughs) but yeah the i I took a a bunch of time off and it it felt good yeah and i think with the auditions too like did you ever hit a point um and you can decline to answer this question if you'd like (laughs) but did you ever hit a point in your audition taking after you get your job in Louisiana where you're just like, you know what? I'm, I'm just, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I'm just, I'm over it. 
there were a couple. There, there was one that Anton won uh, when he won the Met, um, mm. and uh, my <clears throat> like my uncle had just passed away, and then the Met audition had happened, and uh, I just felt really drained after that because it, it was one of my dreams to to play in the Met, and then to yeah. not get it and deal with the loss of a family member was a lot. Um, and then I remember showing up. So the, actually the, uh, the audition that Joe Morris won in Pacific and fully not being prepared at all. And like my instrument was breaking in the warm up room before the first round. Like I got no time in the warm up room and, and somehow probably only advanced through that round because I wasn't there mentally, you know, that was probably helpful, but obviously didn't make it past that point. Um, so that summer, um, I felt pretty burnt out. Um, but kind of after that, I, I got, well, I, I guess there were a few times where I would get burnt out. There was one, one summer. Oh yeah. Um, the audition, I think that Bert Hara won in LA. I, well, I went to LA auditions like three or four times, however many times that they've had them. Mm-hmm. I went to all of them except for the one that Boris won and was swiftly dismissed like immediately from, <laughs> from all of them. But the, um, no, Andrew Lowy, which one was it? Anyways, so th- yeah. that whole summer, I was like, you know what? I'm going to practice more than anybody else. And and I'm sure that I did because I practiced nine hours a day for seven weeks straight. And I would do like <laughs> three. <laughs> there was no way. Like there wasn't enough time in the day for anybody else to have practiced more yeah. than me at that point. But what happened was I peaked after like four weeks. And then it was just steep decline the rest of the time. And by the time I got to the audition, I was so nervous and so like completely unprepared somehow. And I took like 40 milligrams of a beta blocker and forgot the E flat back at the hotel. So I I was going to say, you were probably asleep at that point in time. (laughs) Yeah. It was like a horse tranquilizer. Yeah. (laughs) um, Yeah. So, um, that, I, I felt kind of burnt out after that, but no, eventually, um, I, I know some people it's either feast or famine in regards to their audition taking. And for me, it was like feast and then years of famine. And then it gradually, I would add one thing at a time and, and it would kind of remain consistent. So, um, I, I was appreciative of that, that it was like a consistent crescendo back up. <laughs> to getting another job. So yeah. by the last couple of years, um, I was in the finals for, for stuff most of the time. Um, but it, it was exhausting because, you know, you would kind of almost expect like, all right, if I'm playing at that level, I'll most likely be in the finals. And then you would hold yourself to that standard. And then each time I'd be like, well, if I don't advance, this is just trash. Like that would be horrible. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it, I feel like we can find any, uh, we, we can find tons of ways to make anything exhausting and stressful. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good that you were able to kind of like reset and just like keep your eyes on like what you wanted and, uh, you know, yeah. end up, you know, your tenured principal clarinetist of a terrific orchestra now. And so, yeah, that's, you know, due to your perseverance and, and what is, can only be described as like a really just draining and difficult process. Mm-hmm. Um, especially well, go ahead. Um, having, having something else to focus on other than auditions was really helpful though, because I can imagine if I didn't have a job to go back to, um, then I would have just been focused on like only the failure of that. But 
when, when you have a job and you go take an audition and even if you don't get to the prelims, you go back to your job and you realize that like you can still play with other musicians and you can still communicate and be what you're supposed to be as a performer is just open and communicative. And it's so easy for us to look at, at auditions and have them define our, like our, our audition results, define who we are as like a total human being. And it's really just one little part of being a musician. Um, it's not even like being a performer necessarily. So it's, um, having something else to go back to, um, would really help reset me and kind of put things into perspective. I don't know if you felt that like when you were in Richmond. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, Richmond was a little bit of a different scenario because I was, I mean, I I did have a permanent position there, but my full-time position was temporary. And so there was a little bit of a clock ticking. Unfortunately, you know, I, it worked out, but um, but certainly being an indie, like there's times where I'm just like, you know, should I just like chill and just like, you know, not try to like go after the next thing, you know, cause my mm-hmm. wife's here, she's got a great job. She's killing it. Um, you know, I like it here. It's a great city. The orchestra is awesome. Like there's no, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? And I think for so many years, I was just chasing the next big thing. And, you know, there are auditions and orchestras that I am interested in, but I think that like, having that sort of comfort level of like, okay, if it doesn't work out, it, you know, I'm, I'm certainly no failure, you know, is, mm-hmm. is, is it a comforting thing? But at the same time, it's frustrating. Cause you're like, man, I could have, you know, could have been, you know, I could have been contender, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of, that kind of feeling is always there. You're just like, ah, oh, I've been so close so many times and I could have been in this orchestra or this orchestra and it just like didn't quite work out. And yeah. I, am I just like, is this how good I am? Am I, am I just good enough for here? which is still like, mm-hmm. it's really good. There's nothing wrong with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's an interesting battle that we fight. And I think we all have our own internal critic. That's very good at his or her job. And I think mm-hmm. that, that it's good to take a step back and sort of have perspective on, on our situation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, that, that critic can really eat away at you and kind of ruin any situation that you're in. Um, yeah. But there's some, so many people that we both know that it, they're in fantastic situations, whether it's teaching or ensembles that they're in and just can't find a way to, to enjoy it. Um, and, um, I think that there's so many different ways to explain that. Um, but I think it, um, just what we have to go through every day when we're trying to get better at anything, that negative self-talk and that voice can really permeate throughout your entire life to the point where it can, it can ruin a great situation. Um, so that, that is also, yeah, I, I've struggled with that too, of like how much should you want to move on to the, the, the like being principal of, of the universe orchestra, you know, or like just enjoy where you are and like try to find, you know, make a little nest of love wherever you are and, yeah. and just try to love the city you're in and find all, all the good things that make you happy about it. And, so it, but then it, if you do that, then are you just settling? And right. That's the thing. Yeah. Cause, yeah. It, but then it's like, I think that, and this is my perspective on it, but I think that we all put much more stock into what other people think about us than what anybody actually thinks about us. I know I do for sure. I'm like, oh man, what will my teacher think if I don't get, you know, one of these big base jobs? It's like, he's, he's just happy for me. He's proud of me. Like he doesn't care, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, he'd be Mm -hmm. happy for me if I did, but there's no like, so Mm -hmm. I I think that we have to be careful not to put 
too many of these projections on ourselves and just kind of like you know look at it from like for example like you you i know you very well and you would never look at me and be like well sam's only good enough for the indianapolis symphony mm -hmm. like you would never you're like no sam's killer player and he's great and he'd be great anywhere you know mm -hmm. and the same thing about you you know what i mean like mm -hmm. there's no and and so i think it's it's easy for us to like put these sort of projections onto other people or or think that other people are putting them onto us when in reality it's just kind of us fighting our own battles at least that's how mm -hmm. i feel about it yeah well and, and the the process that we go through in order to get where we are is um is reliant on other people's approval so of course when when we speak to ourselves we we use a, a tone of voice that might be somebody else's because we're always sort of looking for this random voice of, of approval actually ralph schiano talked to me about this um that the voice that that is in his head with self-talk self-criticism is not his own voice and it took him a really long time to realize that and until he said that i had never thought about whose voice is it that's actually right. <laughs> in my head I unfortunately I do think sometimes it's my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> At least you could talk yourself out of it then. Yeah. <laughs> um well cool Chris. So so looking back is there anything that like you wish you would have done differently like to this point in your career Are you like you know what like I've I mean I'll go first once again just to not put you on the spot but like for mm -hmm. me I just wish I would have given myself a break more like not in terms of like a break from the instrument, just a break mm -hmm. from the just like constant destruction of, you know, cause that's how we are as musicians. We're like, this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. This needs to be better. Like, I wish I would have just like been like, you know what? Like you sound good. You're a world-class player. Like just, you sound good. You should be proud of yourself. So I, that's, that's, that's my regret at least to this point. And I'm trying to be better about that, but it's hard. <laughs> um, I definitely identify with that, and there are plenty of situations in my own life that I, I'm sure I could have just been <laughs> uh, released things a little bit more. Uh, I mean, th that goes back to the first thing that we were talking about. Yeah, definitely trying to trying to find a balance. Um, oh man, I I don't know. Uh, I feel like there are so many things that I, I probably could have done differently. Um, I guess maybe one thing early on was I really tried to, in my own playing, just imitate my teacher the whole time. And that really derailed me. Um, mm. It wasn't anybody else's fault. Uh, it's not like he taught me incorrectly or taught me bad habits. But um, whether it was the visual, like looking at his embouchure, I would try to imitate his embouchure or the way he sat or like his hands or whatever, or his musical choices. And I think in doing all of that, I ended up, um, not developing any personality or my own thoughts about how things should go. Um, and would just think, Oh, what would Manassi do in this situation? And I think that that kind of set me back for a little while. Hmm. So, um, I mean, there, there are tons of personal things that I, I wish I, I would have done differently too. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, situations where you wish that you could be kinder or nicer to other people or uh, more forgiving of other people. Um, but um, I kind of have this thing where I, I look back on a situation where I think that I messed up. And I'm like, why did you, why did I have to make that mistake to learn that, that lesson? 
and and it's just kind of become a motive throughout my life. It's like, I mean, I, I should have been able to know that 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 would have been a mistake to do, but unfortunately, I had to make that mistake in order to learn to make hopefully not do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a very general comment, but um, those are probably the two main things. Those are great things, um, and I and I think that you know we all we all have something we wish we could have done differently and it's good to look back and, and not, not beat yourself up over it, but just kind of like, okay, these are things I could do, be better at moving forward. Yeah. It, it's hard because I, I do on one hand wish that I hadn't done blank, but then also at the same time, that thing taught me this lesson so that, so I don't fully wish that it didn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of, I like, I wish whatever the effect, like the, the thing that happened from that, blank wouldn't have happened, but I'm glad that I have that knowledge now. And I went through that. So it's a weird dichotomy. Yes. And I, it's, it's kind of, you, you can't get rid of it. So it, um, also learning to not beat myself up, just like what you just said, eventually having to forgive yourself for whatever you feel like you messed up on, um, is really important. And I, I, I used to get in the car as like a third grader and my mom would pick me up from school and I would just tell her everything I did wrong immediately. And it got to the point where, where she would be like, you have to tell me two good things first. Like, did you like in, in recess baseball, did you hit a home run? Like even something like that. But I'd be like, no, that the teacher told me to stop talking or like, I, you know, did this other thing that was really terrible. And so I've always had a guilty conscience throughout my, <laughs> my life. Uh, that's funny uh that's awesome man but I, i'm glad that you know first of all it's, it's great to have you i i just yeah I, it's, it's nice been be a long time since we've caught up and i'm, I'm glad that yeah. you were able to join me for this and i think we had a really nice discussion about all this stuff it's really important for people yeah. to hear that like it's not all like sunshine and rainbows like there's some tough lessons along the um, along the way and you're gonna mm-hmm. make mistakes and those mistakes are okay and it's better that you learn them when you make them and then you know improve on them moving forward than than beating yourself up over it so i think it's i think it's really important for people to hear especially coming from someone like you yeah i mean we're we're all very human um and just because you have a certain position doesn't um mean that that you're above making mistakes so maybe that was one thing that i I would want to change that like when i was younger i would just really um idolize whoever was in like an equivalent to position to wherever I am now. Like I, I would look at people that, that taught at whatever music festival I was going to or at, at Juilliard and wow, they're the principal of the Met and, or the New York Phil, like they're a God basically. And I wish I had done less of that. I think it was unhealthy for me to, to think like that. And I think it permeates throughout classical music to, to do that. But maybe it's just like an American thing of holding on to titles of jobs I don't mm-hmm. know. It's an ego related thing. So, um, but yeah, as we've been talking about, we're just regular people who make mistakes who happen to get a certain position in an orchestra. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, I feel like that just got dark. Sorry. No, no, that's <laughs> not dark at all. No, that's not, that's not dark at all. I think that's good. That's good for you to point that out. And I think that's, you know, one of the, one of my goals with the podcast was just like, I wanted to bring on a bunch of my friends who I know to just be cool, regular people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I've done that. And I think I've sort of stripped back this, like you said, this title, like 
when people see you, if they don't know you, they know you as the principal clarinetist of the Cincinnati Symphony, right? That's that's mm-hmm. what you are. But mm-hmm. you're actually you're just Chris, you know. That's mm-hmm. what you'll you'll always be Chris to me. You know, you'll be Chris mm-hmm. sitting on the Tanglewood lawn drinking a beer together. Like that's mm-hmm. what that's what I know you as, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's cool for people to see that side of you and that side of me and that side of all my guests because it it really kind of strips down that barrier that we all have. And and like you said, I think that that's an important lesson that you learned is like, it's not about that title or that idolization. It's just about the people behind it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we all go through very similar things, you know? And we all go through this process, this really tumultuous process of trying to get a job or relationships outside of the orchestra or just growing up experiences. So yep. uh, how to have a family, you know, you're, you're married now and how to be a good partner to whoever mm-hmm. you're with. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's great that you do this and, uh, very nice of you to have me on. And, oh, yeah, um, absolutely, man. Hey, yeah. before you leave though, do you have any, uh, like shout outs or anyone you want to thank or any, any last pieces of advice? I feel like you've, you've, you've had a whole podcast full of advice, but if you have anything else you want to share, you're welcome to, to share that. <clears throat> Um, uh, anything I want to share? I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, try FaceTiming with, with your friends and, and practice with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun and you feel like very warm when you do it. And it's super cute. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It can help you get out of whatever little rut you might be in. Yeah. Um, and, and as you said, be easier on yourself. That's yeah. awesome, Chris. I, well, I guess that, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, dude. Well, it, it was so awesome to have you and so awesome to catch up. And because we're neighbors now, when the world isn't exploding anymore, uh, yeah. we'll have to to meet up and, you know, hang out a little bit because you're only a you know, stone's basically a stone's throw away from me. So that'll be fun. I know. Right? It's like to 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Barely, barely a drive. So you could, you could yeah. run here. You could run. You could make a day <laughs> out of it, you know? <laughs> well, buddy, uh, thanks so much for, uh, for, for being here and um yeah it was just it was great to have you um Thanks. it was nice to be here thank you yeah so uh if you haven't had the chance already please be sure to stop by our website at candidclarinetistpodcast.com where you can find more information about myself the podcast and links to all of our content platforms we're very close to 700 followers on instagram so if you i would love it if you would just head over to our instagram page and just give our uh, our page a follow uh, i post uh Fairly frequently, though I've been a little negligent recently. So, uh, but still, still fun. I, I like to do a lot of interactive things and asking questions and whatnot to our followers. So, uh, give us a like and help us get over that 700 followers mark. Uh, once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning into the Candid Clarinetist podcast. <laughs>